and welcome to episode 85 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMinikid.wordpress.com. This year, we're celebrating Halloween by dropping a new episode every Monday in the month of October. And if you do the math, Richard, I think that's five episodes. Yes, and not just regular episodes. We are changing the format of our club meetings just a bit, and we'll be joined each week by a special guest to discuss a classic horror film of their choice. We won't have our regular features, there won't be a podcast companion, but we'll be providing plenty of holiday content right here and on our respective blogs. Did I mention there are five Mondays in October? Well, we invite you to celebrate with us for each of those five Mondays in October and all month long by leaving your comments and or feedback. You can do that by joining our Facebook group page, or you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 616-649-2582 at 616-649-BLUB. Well, I guess some things will carry over from our regular format. (laughs) Here today to discuss the 1972 horror thriller, The Other, is filmmaker Ansel Farage. Welcome, Ansel. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. Before we jump into our thoughts about the other, we want to take a couple of minutes and have you tell us and the audience about yourself. What would you like our listeners to know about you? I am an independent filmmaker with several features under my belt. You might know me from the Dr. Mabuza films with Jerry Lacey, Catherine Lee Scott, Laura Parker. I also have directed Loon Lake, which is a folk horror film based on the Minnesota legend of Mary Jane, the Witch of Loon Lake, which features David Selby. Todd Tarantula is my latest release. It's a psychedelic Los Angeles film noir, sci-fi, insane, crazy, indescribable experience (laughs) that also features David Selby in an award-winning performance. Yeah, I've been doing this since I was six years old. I don't have any film school training. I've just just taught myself sitting in front of Turner Classic Movies. You know, I hope that the powers that be don't mess with Turner Classic Movies because we do need classic film and classic film preservation and to allow new generations to discover the foundations of Hollywood. I really hope that channel doesn't go away. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I think you know I'm a huge fan of Loon Lake. We've talked about that. I talk about that whenever I can. I really like that. Your Dr. Mabuse films, I watched all of them during the pandemic oh um, i'm sorry <laughs> no it was, some of it was on the monster kid radio saturday stream and that was kind of my gateway i watched some of the german mabuse films years ago and i was like i remember having a hard time getting into those but your films were kind of the gateway into me revisiting some of those films and i still haven't made my way through all of them but i enjoyed that particular series I know that you're a huge fan of of one of Jeff's favorite shows, Dark Shadows, and I'm such a newbie with Dark Shadows. It's one of those daunting things. It's like, yeah, there's only 10,000 episodes to watch. Share a few thoughts about Dark Shadows here. I mean, I know we've got a lot of fans on the show want us to do more Dark Shadows. We've covered the movies in the past, and we've even attempted to talk about the series. And from my perspective, that was like, I'm going to pick whatever it was, 10 random episodes. And it's like, that's impossible to do. To make an addendum to the Mabuza films, I was really young when I did the Mabuza films. I was 20 when the first film was made. So I have grown and improved since then with my filmmaking, but I'm still proud of them. Dark Shadows, when I was a kid, my mom would tell me she was an original, you know, ran home from school, the whole deal, to watch Dark Shadows. She would tell me various storylines of the show as bedtime stories. So that tells you I had a very odd upbringing. (laughs) Then the the tapes were available, but the movies weren't. And she had Catherine Lee Scott's book, the first one, My Scrapbook Memories of Dark Shadows. It was signed by Catherine and by Jonathan Frid. There was a whole thing about the movie House of Dark Shadows. I would look through this book when I was, like I said, very young, four or five, and started seeing like behind the scenes photography of of making the show making the first film and sort of then understanding that what i'm looking at on television you know not necessarily the series but just television programs in general 
these things are made. It's not just happening and coming on the screen and there's a whole thing behind it. The photos from the movies looked really cool or the movie itself, House of Dark Shadows. And that seemed a much more easily digestible story to me. So I always wanted to see the film. And then in the early mid nineties, MGM released the videotapes. So I saw House of Dark Shadows when I was five and I was <laughs> I was a bit young for it because it's a bit intense, you know. I made it about halfway through to Carolyn staking. And really my mom saw a bunch of movies at the she saw the Dunwich Horror at the drive-in. Kind of incredible that she would see that, but yet somehow she never saw the original Dark Shadows movies, which I cannot figure out for the life of me. Huh. She's like, oh, I didn't know they existed. How did you not know? Like it was everywhere. <laughs> but where were you? Like I know that, you know, my sister was just born, but like, come on, you saw Dunwich Horror. I came and got her and I'm like, uh, this is kind of scary. And she comes in and she sees, you know, blood and gore going everywhere. So the videotape came out really fast. I was riveted and I liked the way this movie made me feel. <laughs> I wanted more. And I also wanted to recreate that feeling for other people. So that also got my filmmaking bug going. Between House of Dark Shadows and Phantom of the Opera with Todd Brains and Creature from the Black Lagoon, I was kind of cursed or destined to to make movies the dark shadows movies house of dark shadows and night of dark shadows were my gateway into collinsport and then we started getting the tapes and i started seeing you know these stories that she had told me now come to life i never saw it as being campy or funny or you know here's the boom or here's the fly that's buzzing and driving jerry lacy crazy or whatnot i was just like seeing oh my god they're gonna hang vicky because they think she's a witch and reverend trask is coming after her and now there's all this other crazy shit going on so i just saw it for what the story was and i liked it nobody else knew what i was talking about back then and just like the other nobody nobody knew this film i mean you know i'm sure that some people knew about it but uh, pre-internet nobody knew this movie uh that i loved i got video hounds horror show the book 999 great horror movies you know reviewed on vhs and there was a family photo from the other and you see john ritter and victor french and uda hagen and the twins and i used to see this photo in the book and always wanted to see this movie then mid-2000s fox put that out and nobody knew this film that's my thoughts on dark shadows that i've tangentially led into the other of people don't know the things I talk about now thanks to the internet everybody's a fan and they're all wearing Phantom of the Paradise t-shirts and they all made Suspiria memes and I'm just like well I knew it was cool before you did your, your <laughs> dark shadows I think really that that's my thing with Doctor Who is that you were focused on the stories of, of yeah. dark shadows yeah you didn't care about the boom mics coming in. I was always the same way. It's like, I know the writing on Doctor Who. Yeah, there was sometimes some some weird stuff, but there was some really good stories being told. I overlooked the fact that, you know, maybe the wall moved when they bounced up against it or, yeah, that's yeah. that's a trash bag. You know, that's a trash <laughs> bag of a monster in a pit. You know, I'm going to overlook yeah. that. You just rolled yeah. it. There's some great ideas in, in, I mean, parallel time. Now everybody does multiverses, but they were doing it back then. And something I love, everybody just thinks, oh, Barnabas. It's all about Barnabas. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to Dark Shadows than just Barnabas. The first round of episodes, it's film noir. It's gothic film noir. And then it becomes a horror show. And then it just gets crazier and crazier. But something I love is the staircase through time. Like, who thought of that? That Quentin can design and build a staircase that will take you through time. How did you do that? Like I even even within the reality of Dark Shadows, I was always fascinated. How does he know this staircase can go through time? I still love that concept. Yeah, and they did Lovecraft on there with the Leviathans with Chris Pinnock. That show is remains ahead of its time, and that's why I think it's lasted 50 some years. And hopefully, hopefully we'll go back with Dark Shadows reincarnation whenever these strikes end, go back to more of that crazy gothic worlds that Dan Curtis invented. I have to ask you a quick follow-up question. So you talked about yep. watching House of Dark Shadows. I was about the same age when I saw it, but it was first time oh, around at the theater. And I remember that experience <laughs> very distinctly. I've talked about it before, so I'm not going to tell the story, but 
How did you take it as such a youngster? Did it truly scare you? It was literally the very first thing I ever saw of Dark Shadows. I had not seen any of the show. These images and this music, that was the very first thing. Right from the start, the Bob Covert's music is just blasting. I get very annoyed with the fans who deride, oh, it's too violent, oh, it's other. Dan Curtis took this show that was shot in like an eight by eight space in a Manhattan studio and literally opened it up and made it real. We are in an actual mansion. We are actually in Collinsport where you get to go to various places and they are real tangible things. Lindhurst and upstate New York and all that. The way that they shot it, the way that Arthur Ornett's, you know, the handheld camera work and it has this great visceral sensibility. The fans don't like that, but that was the first thing that I ever got to experience of the show. So just that sledgehammer approach, that first scene where Lisa Richards is attacked by Barnabas and the, the zooming in, the zooming out, and the music's going crazy, and then her Dick Smith gory vampire bite. I mean, yeah, I'm five years old. I'm used to Claude Rains' Phantom of the Opera, where they're mostly singing. It's a little safe, and Bride of Frankenstein, and all of a sudden, like, this is like an adult movie. And I was left alone, too, because my mom had never seen it. So she thinks it's going to be like the series, which it's not. <laughs> so I was like alone in a bedroom at my parents' friend's house because they had a Hollywood video and, and they rented it for me. Yeah, it was intense. It was scary. And I identified with David Collins because I'm a little boy and, you know, he's a young boy. Here comes his undead cousin trying to attack him in the ruined pool house all hell is breaking loose minute after minute in that movie. And I was just like, oh, oh my God. I never even got to the Barnabas with the arrow through him. Like that would have finally did blow my mind, you know, two years later when I got to finish the videotape. I definitely did get scared. So I went and got an adult. If I hadn't been as cowardly, I probably would have. When she took it out, then I was like, wait a second. I shouldn't have said anything because now I need to see what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, and I like the way that I feel. I'm terrified, but I like it. You kind of already hinted at why you picked the other. Any other specific reason why you wanted to talk about it tonight? It's so underrated. You guys already have an idea of how twisted I am, but I think it's a beautiful summer movie. I think it's a great childhood film. I love Jerry Goldsmith's score. It's a very sparse score, but when it comes in, it's beautiful. I have to watch it every summer, otherwise it's just not summer. To me, it's the dark flip side of To Kill a Mockingbird. Was, both films are directed by Robert Mulligan. It's the wicked stepbrother to To Kill a Mockingbird. There's so many things. I mean, I think as we, we dive in further, I'll start on spooling why I love it. It's always been an underrated film. And now, thankfully, I've seen it get posted a lot on Facebook. I guess I'm not the only one that knows about this movie. It's an unconventional horror film. I hesitate to even call it a horror film. It's childhood gone wrong. It's a family drama. It's a thriller in daylight, as Brian Forbes, the director of Separate Wise, would call it. It's just so unique. Since you mentioned the mu music, let's go ahead and talk about that. And Richard knows more of the details, but the score was trimmed quite a bit. I don't remember at what point. But it's the absence of music in the movie that I thought was just so fantastic. I mean, there were... Yeah. There were parts like where you could hear the wind blowing and that was the yeah. only sound. You know, I didn't want music then. I thought it was perfect. But I did find this morning there's a 20-minute suite of it on yep. the soundtrack to the Mephisto Waltz. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, listening it like that, yeah, it's fantastic. It's yeah. great music. But I didn't miss not having more of it. But still, even then, like the 20 minutes, that's all that Jerry Goldsmith composed. At all, completely. I mean, yeah, Ooh. it was trimmed here and there. But Jerry Goldsmith had a had a rule where he said, if a film is really good, it's not going to require that much music. So he himself saw the quality in the film to only compose the 20 minutes of, of music that he did compose. And then he had slotted in here and there and it's trimmed a bit here and there. But that's a testament still to the filmmaking and the, the acting. I mean, the whole package of the film. And yes, that, that is a great. CD with the Mephesto Walters is also a, a movie that makes no sense, but I like it anyway. <laughs> one day, one of my end game goals is to make the Donwich Horror. I've wanted to do a proper version of that. You know, I much as I love Dean Stockwell and Sandra D, I want to do the story when I first read it when I was 11 years old and I was transported to this 
landscape that Lovecraft wrote about. And the other is like a key touchstone film that I want to reference and have a score like the other in that. It's this beautiful melancholy yet wistfulness because it's childhood. The pain and tragedy of childhood and yet the joy of childhood. And, and Jerry Goldsmith just captures all that. To really talk about this, we're going to have to have spoilers. So yeah. spoiler warning. Ansel, you and I have both seen this. I've seen it many times. I think I did first see it on a CBS movie. I had that in my mind. And then as I was doing my little bit of research, I saw that that's kind of where it was probably mostly seen was on. Yeah. But Richard, this was your first time. So I am dying to know what you thought of it. Did you see the twist coming? I just watched this last night. So it's like very fresh in my mind. And before I lose my thought, the absence of music in certain scenes of the film absolutely was the right choice. Jerry Goldsmith is amazing and shameless. Yes, Star Trek connection, the first of, of two that we'll have with this film. His music in, in Star Trek, the motion picture is iconic. And in a scene where, you know, in that movie, you're seeing the Enterprise, the refit Enterprise for the first time, that is an iconic piece of music. And then you've got, in this film, the absence of it in certain scenes is important and is absolutely the right choice. A, a composer who is that invested in the film and is saying, look, I'm, I'm getting paid to do this composing, but I don't want to do music in a scene or this scene because I think there's an importance to not have it in every single scene because it sets a mood, it sets a tone. Music is very important as well as the absence of music. Now, what did I think about the movie? I'm a sucker for films that don't get talked about, that have been kind of lost in the cracks, so to speak. And I hope that our discussion here today about the other maybe opens up some conversation on some other shows. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. As you said, this is an annual summer viewing for you. I can see that. It was supposed to be what's set in Connecticut, but they ended up filming it in California because of the weather, because by the time they were getting ready to shoot, they wanted a summer movie, but it would have had the fall leaves in Connecticut, would have changed the tone of the film. For the most part, they really don't stress the locale. You can just enjoy that this is a rural farm in what, 1935 is, is when it's set. You absolutely can, can immerse yourself. And I think the the costumes and I didn't have any moment that it, that I got sucked out, except there was a few times with the twins, the clothing choices they had. I, I, there was one scene where, you know, I was trying to like figure out, is he, is he wearing swim trunks? So this short seemed awful small on him. The hairstyle seemed very 1970s as opposed to what I was thinking in 1935 hairstyle would have been for a boy but those were just momentary thoughts didn't pull me out of the moment the farmhouse setting and from the car to just the overall I think even the way they handled the carnival it was an old-time carnival and you had the sideshow and you had the Asian magician doing his act it was absolutely something you would have seen in 1935 when you go in with kid horror films you never know where it's going to go. And I, that sometimes can be something I'm a little, I don't want to say squeamish about, but I'm not into seeing kids get hurt. And that's definitely not what this movie is about. Because once I got into the film, it's like, okay, this is something totally different. And that's not going down that territory at all. Growing up, it never affected me because I was 14 years old. So you're naively jaded to everything. But now like raising kids... It definitely hit a different nerve than it ever hit before in any of my viewings, especially the end. This is awful. Although I still don't mind when Piggy Lookadoo, <laughs> the cousin, gets it at the front. Yes. Because he's just an annoying little brat. He is. But, um, yeah. It's amplified when you become a grandfather, too. It's because like now I'm seeing things from grandfather perspective. Yeah, I, I look at kid horror movies now with an even different lens. I do appreciate the bad seed type films or, or movies where the kid is at the center of the wrongdoings, the evil doings, what have you, the omen type setting, if you will. That doesn't bother me. 
And that's where I think, for me, the time period that this movie was set in is really what helps set this movie apart from other films. This was 72. This was years before The Omen. Five years before, yeah. The Omen is 76. This is obviously set apart from those. And I think that's what, for me, one of the best things about the movie is that it it definitely felt... It, listen, the Something Wicked This Way comes, one of the best parts about that movie is it gives you a feeling of fall. That movie is just soaked in fall. This movie is soaked in summer. Almost like a summertime adventure, and there's going to, things are going to happen. We're on this adventure with them. We're going to go through these experiences with them. Something uh, about the violence to also add, so much of this movie, the violence happens off screen. It's always implied, or even the death of Piggy Lookadoo. You don't actually see it. You just kind of hear it, and then you see the aftermath. That's the case with so many of the scenes. Even the big finale scene, which is terrible, versus like the omen is very in your face. I've never been an actual fan of the omen movies. It took me a long time to warm up to the original. I know I'm like in the minority. I really hate omen 2. I think it's stupid. This movie's pointless. And then I saw omen 3 last year having kids and i'm just like i hate this film i absolutely hate this movie i hate the violence in this when they're slaying all the children that were born between these dates and that those dates because they might be the the jesus resurrected kid this is awful another film just going on like movies centered around kids that are like horror stories the orphanage the spanish film if you guys are familiar with that i think that's a brilliant ghost story I rewatched that not too long ago and it just broke my heart even more than before. Cause now with kids, it's like, it's a whole new, a whole new experience. It is. That you don't think about, but yeah, with the other, so much of it is just psychological. So much of it is just off screen. It still feels innocent because we're seeing the movie through Niles's point of view. There's the two boys, Holland and Niles, but it's really through Niles's eyes. And he is innocent to a point of ignorance especially where the story goes the true gruesome horror he doesn't see it he doesn't experience it so therefore we don't see it and experience it and then it's just in your mind's eye which amplifies it further but i think that's also that helps keep the nasty feelings at bay and yeah what you're talking about rural americana that norman rockwell approach to the whole style of the movie and and the world that Mulligan and them set up gives it just like this protective sheen to the audience. You're just so drenched in sunlight and lens flares <laughs> that you're not, <laughs> to get technical, you're not thinking of the true gruesome horror underneath. You've got a, a good cast in this one. There's not anybody overly recognizable because sometimes that can pull you out of a moment. Obviously, there's a few people that we know now, but in 1972, nobody knew who John Ritter was. I don't know if anybody knew who Victor French was really much in 1972. Uda Hagen, who plays Ada, she was a Broadway performer. She was a Tony Award winner. You've got the two boys, Chris and Martin Udvernarki. Yeah, Udvernarki is how I always said it, yeah. And yeah. She, she discovered them, like they were in her acting class. Yeah. So she suggested them for the film. Also, just an original, interesting tidbit, she was Jerry Lacey's acting coach, so he was in her class. So I brought this film up with him several times. He goes, I never even knew she was in a movie. Because this was her first on-camera appearance on film, even though she gets top billing. I've been prefacing now, now having kids, like if you get a whole different... But the scene between her and and Niles where she's nothing can be the same. Everything has changed. And I brought this upon you. She just breaks my heart with her performance. And everybody is honest in their portrayal. Even Victor French playing this like Italian guy. Like everybody is honest and believable. And there's not like a weak link in the cast. That's a testament to Robert Mulligan. His eye for casting and then how he handles them. The two boys, Chris and Martin they carry the film and it's also their first acting role and child last right yeah pretty much i think there was like one other like tv credit and then in an interesting turn of events one of them died later on as an adult which is kind of an eerie 
coincidence, not to get spoilery. It's fascinating. Something else. So I'm sorry if I ramble, but like I get excited about movies no. and then I just, my mind is so, <laughs> but like something else that I love about just the directing alone, Robert Mulligan never shows both boys in the same frame. We never see them together in, in any frame before the start of the film or at the end of the film, when we know things like they're always kept separately in conventional twin movies. You, if you, it's like a single actor, Sometimes they'll do that. A lot of times they will do split screens that you can, oh, here they both are. Here's Betty Davis and Betty Davis and Dead Ringer. He does a very interesting thing that a subliminal effect upon the audience. We're never actually thinking about, oh, wait, we never saw them together. But it's still like just this sense of uneasiness. Like Holland is never with Niles. If you really dive into it over the course of events, well, there's a reason why. I just think that's a brilliant directing choice. Yeah, and uh, sometimes you just hear Holland's voice. Yeah, and, echoing from the barn or whatever. I noticed this viewing, he always leaves the room first. You asked the question, when did I pick up on yes. that, as we said, spoiler alert here, that we're only dealing with one boy who's still alive. And for me, the moment where I was like, something's not right here, is the scene in the kitchen early on in the film where... Niles is in the kitchen. He's trying to get into the cookies that are in the oven or something. Yeah. Obviously, he needed to come in and eat. No one's asking where Holland's at. Why is nobody mentioning Holland? I picked up, have we seen them in the same scene? No, they are, but they're not. I was pretty much decided at that point, unless they're, are they going to throw me for a loop and he is really alive or something? Because up to that point, we've seen him out playing in the field. We'd seen him in the barn. And there is the scene where we see Holland drop the jar of pickles. What threw me this time knowing what was going to happen was I forgot that Mrs. Rowe didn't know. And right. she does call him Holland. Right, right, right. And he goes along with it. And, and that's a great little magic trick. I have a oh, question for you, Ansel, along these yeah. lines. You being a filmmaker and talking yeah. about technical. I could just be reading into it, but... You, when you watch a movie so many times, you pick up things. But that opening shot, which is just beautiful, and it goes through the woods, and then it slowly moves to him sitting by the water. I don't know if it was a trick of the light or the way that the sun was shining on the camera or something, but he has sort of like a halo around him, almost like an image of himself on top Dude, of himself. Yeah. That couldn't I, have been purposeful, but it's a nice... No, I, I know, I know, because every time I watch it, I see that too. In the lens, the light is just deflecting it. In camera lenses, there's like a mirror to refract the light, capture the light into the film and whatnot. So it's an effect of that. But I'm sure that they used it to their advantage. You think it was like, purposeful? Or... Yeah, much oh, like okay. when, when Robert Wise did The Haunting and he got these super wide lenses from Panavision. And they're like, we don't want these used because there's distortion in the lenses. And he goes, no, 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 no. That's exactly why I want them. Because of the perceptions of the house and Eleanor's period. So I'm sure that that was something like maybe when they were setting up the shot and, you know, they're, they're panning over that they saw that. And then Mulligan was like, no, totally like, let's not flag the light flagging, meaning you need to put some kind of diffusion in front of the sunlight or the light source itself to stop these lens flares or these effects. It is a great happy accident as yep. Orson Welles would call it. Speaking of the twist, when I saw it, now, then again, I was like 14 and I was at that state. Now I, I'm no longer innocent to filmmaking and storytelling and stuff. So it's, it's pretty awful just like watching a movie and just ripping it apart in the first five minutes. Back then, I'm finally going to watch this movie. I've wanted to see it for years and years, and I pretty much know nothing about it other than it's about a family in 30s America. And it's a horror movie, quote unquote. So I went into it as blind as possible and just went along for the ride. And I never saw the twist coming until things are revealed. Then I was like gobsmacked by the twist. I totally bought into it. Then again, I was younger. So I don't know if young and stupid. I always try to tell people, do not think when you're watching this movie, just watch it. Let it happen to you. I can't remember. I, I was young too, so I probably didn't see it coming. This is one thing I hate. 
you can never unsee it. You know what's going to happen. Yeah. So yeah. on one hand, it makes it fun to watch it again because you can kind of pick up what the clues are. But right. then you'll never have that surprise again of that sixth sense moment, right? The first time you see that and then the big reveal is like you can't recapture that. But it's right. a good one. There there are some twists that aren't good. It's come after even the, the twist that happens. Well, yeah, yeah. That's an hour into the movie. I mean, that's yeah. something I wanted to bring up because I, I don't know if you'd go so far to say this isn't really about the twins themselves. It's kind of all building toward, and there's just as many clues to what it's building towards. Yeah. The very first scene, we see the newspaper and it's the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. The housekeeper, she goes, don't give that. It'll upset Mrs. Alexander. And then you start to understand, well, why is that going to upset her? Well, because her own son and all these things that Niles is getting the ideas for filtered through Holland's mind. It's brilliant. I mean, it really is. And that goes off. Now we're going to really backtrack to the Tom Tryon's novel and the, the his adaptation of the novel. I shamefully have not read the book. I've read Harvest Home, which he turned into Dark Secret of Harvest Home. But I've never read the book of the other. I'd love to. I'm sure there's a copy around somewhere. I'm just lazy and haven't looked for it. Just the structure in storytelling and the way that he himself lays out the story and the little clues and twists, the very foundation, pulling the rug out from underneath you like an hour into the story. That's ballsy. That's ballsy for any film. You're not going to find out that Norman is his mother an hour into Psycho. Like, right. it's going to take some time. So then to do that, you could run the risk of losing your audience because, oh, okay, well, now I know. But yet the story and the way that Tryon and Mulligan... Well, you want to see what's going to happen now that you know audience. that. Yeah, you have to see like, where is this going to go. Okay, so this is a sick little kid. What's he going to do? Right, right. Now we're in on a secret that he himself is not in on because he is in denial about everything. Even though he's told Ada that I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to play the game anymore, he's still doing it. He's still going down there and having visions of the wake and cutting the finger with the ring. Where is the shit going to hit the fan? Excuse my language. The tension and the buildup there is brilliant. The whole thing could be deflated an hour in, and we still have 40-odd minutes to go. I want to talk about the mother real quick. So Alexandra... Yeah. From Star Trek The Next Generation, Captain Blast, yeah. Star Trek Connection, uh, also the original series, and Planet Earth, which we've talked about on this uh, show several years ago. The scenes that she has with Niles, up until the moment where she falls down the stairs, in my mind, I'm thinking, we don't see her really with anybody else up until that moment. I'm thinking, is she, is she catatonic in the bedroom? Because we're only seeing her with Niles. And then, of course, as you're beginning to understand that Niles isn't like the other boys. He's he's different. In my mind, I'm kind of thinking, did all of those conversations between Alexandra and Niles really happen? You know? I feel like that they do happen because you have that scene when him and Ada come back. I think it's from church. She's out there and maybe she has recovered. And there's a great dialogue bit where he goes, Mama, are you still, are you hoping? And she goes, yes, I am hoping. Things might just be okay. And they're sitting out on the porch swing. There's another great moment where he's got two different things in his hand. He goes, pick which one. I got a surprise for you. You know, close your eyes. And he's digging out his stuff from his little treasure box. And she very subtly opens her eyes like all parents do. <laughs> when you're like wanting to see what's your kid going to get up to now? These little touches here and there. But she has that moment when they come back from church. Uta Hagen says, oh, Alexandra. And she walks up to her. And only in like couple other years later that i realized oh she's actually uta hagen's daughter because i was trying to figure out where does the whole family connection you know but she's actually her daughter they have a moment where they are speaking we're not privy to what they're saying because niles runs off to go do something else and we follow niles she's active and able up until she isn't i don't think that those are hallucinations i think the hallucinations are pretty strict between Holland and Niles. And then, you know, when they're playing the game and he imagines that he's flying or whatnot that are all brought on by Uta Hagen. On top of all this, we have a sort of a supernatural layer that right. they can play this game. And I've read it, talked about, oh no, I can't think of the word, but he puts himself inside the body of the crow, astral projection. Yeah. And so when the crow flies, he's flying and that's beautiful photography. 
So I get that. I get the magician. He gives the magician's head, learns how to do the yeah. trick. I don't understand the coffin. That was the scene I was going to... What's your take on that, Ansel? I mean... When, when they're at the graveside or when... No, when, when he the, goes in the coffin, I assume he's in his dead brother's body and he yeah, recognizes, oh, I'm yeah. in a wooden box and it's black. Right, right, when they're at the graveside and she's, yeah, like, yeah. she's wanting him to see. Yeah. yeah, I just took it as that too, that he's just thrown himself into Holland's corpse feeling that the premature burial aspect uh, exactly i was this. thinking like oh is he really alive because if he's dead his eyes aren't open niles can't see what's around him maybe i haven't thought about that too much I've just i've gone with it of like yeah he's thrown himself into that and he just can't get out maybe he's possessed the body and the body itself is like you know pushing against the coffin that's a great scene. And then when we finally do see, you know, look at the gravestone. What does it say? What does it say? And then he starts screaming. I keep saying it, but the movie is brilliant. It's a brilliant work of 70s horror that is so unlike any other 70s horror film. I want to circle back on the not knowing the relationships. This movie starts off running. Yeah. You're thrown into this family all at once, and there's a lot of different members of the family. And yeah. I don't know who is who. Right. I'm a little disoriented. It's very authentic. They're just going about their day. There's never like any long expository introductions to these characters. You just kind of figure it out. And I think that contributes to the authenticity. It's important, but it's not important. We understand this is this family. They are a perfect family. Everybody loves each other. Everybody takes care of each other. And this family is going to be ripped apart brutally (laughs) over the course of this story. And that's all that we really need to know. Was anyone else exhausted by how much Niles runs? (laughs) He runs everywhere he goes. Slow down a minute. That's one of those summer moments, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I remember childhood freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Once you're after you've smoked a couple packs uh, and a couple years later, you can't run like that. (laughs) I want to be able to run like that again, you know, have that childlike wonder. Yeah. When summer days just felt like forever. Yes. Just kept going and going. And I still kind of like remember there was a couple days where it felt like forever. And now I'm like, oh my God, we are shooting in the middle of summer and I have like five hours left and the sun is going to go down, even though it won't go down until eight. It went like that. It took me back to when I was a kid. I could get on my bike, I could leave and I could be gone for hours. And my mom, who always kept me in kind of a bubble anyway, for some reason she was okay with me if I was going for a bike ride. And living in small town, I was able to go to all four corners of the town. I'd go right to the edge of town, and I'd be gone for hours and exploring the world. And if I had some money, you know, maybe I'd get like a, a you know, some candy at, at the one quick trip that we had in town. That's another testament to a good film when it's able to give you that nostalgic trip. I know this is like a, a sort of off-topic question, but like. I'm from LA, you know, I'm, I'm from Venice beach, LA. Like it's, you know, what are your guys towns? If you don't mind the internet, <laughs> now I'm just curious where you guys actually grew up. I'm in Kansas city now, but I grew up in Newton, Kansas, which is a small, well, small in the sense that at the time it had about 15,000 people. It was North of Wichita, North enough that it wasn't a suburb. Small town. We had one theater, the Fox Theater downtown. And that's my childhood memories of going to the Fox Theater as a kid, small enough that I could get on my bike and travel without having to cross a highway at any point. I went as far south in Newton, pretty much to where there was was a highway. But if you got on the other side of the highway, at that time, there wasn't any more town left. Right. It's like the edge of town. Right. And I grew up in Enid, Oklahoma. It was a town of about 55,000, mid-sized, I guess. And I was in a, like a suburban type neighborhood, you know, houses down the street. There wasn't a lot of like woods that were in the movie, but I mean, that's what you did. You played outside. I can remember across the street from our house between two other houses was not really a ditch, but a a slope in the yard. And if you laid in it, the, the size you were, it just fit your body. And I would just lay there and look up at the clouds and just feel the weather and the grass this movie made me think of that not specifically the same 
things, but the feeling. All the adventures that you'd have as a kid. We had a mound of dirt in this field behind our house, which sometimes was a wheat field. At one point, when I was a really young kid, they had horses there. To me, it was the mountain. If I was going out to play, mom, I'm going out to the mountain. And it was all the way on the other side of the field, which was probably a block at most. But to me, it was out there. I had a walking stick for years, or I would take my M16 machine gun, or I would take my phaser and have all these adventures on this mountain. Obviously, I didn't grow up on a farm, but kind of that same mindset, you know, that there was a clump of trees that was the forest for me. I had the imagination. I didn't have a tree house because we didn't have trees big enough, but I had a clubhouse in the backyard. This movie took me back to that childhood stuff. There was something else that took me back to my childhood, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but in the movie when, don't know if it's the first time or second time that Ada's talking to Niles, and she's kind of scolding him or something, and he says, do you still love me? My sister and I used to have brutal fights, and after the end of them, one of us would always ask the other, do you still love me? (laughs) I don't know. That made me think of that. You're hearing your guys' childhoods. Yeah, I had none of that. I could ride my bike down to the end of the street and then back up because if I went to the other end of the street, there was a drug house. (laughs) My parents were like, never go around. Never go around those people. And so I would lay in my front yard. I would beat the crap. My sister and I would beat the crap out of each other, although she was considerably older. So a lot of it was mostly insulting and we never said, do you still love me back? And I'm like, I hate your guts. There's a film from the mid nineties, Eve's Bayou, directed by Casey Lemons, who was in Candyman and she's in Silence of the Lambs. It's about a very prestigious African-American family in the bayous in, in Louisiana. And it's the closest I think I've ever seen to a film kind of getting to like the other where it's during the summer and the sun-drenched photography and kids going out and wanting to play. And then there's this sort of slight supernatural thing going on and a family member is killed. And it's about memory and and the pain of childhood in the past, late 50s, Louisiana. This movie feels like the other. I don't know if you guys are are familiar with this film or not. I've never seen that. You should definitely check it. Criterion released it on Blu-ray last year. And I just did an article on it for uh, We Belong Dead. I only had seen it when Criterion released it. Roger Ebert said this is the best film of 1997. And if it doesn't get nominated for any Academy Awards, it's a travesty. And it was ignored. I think it is streaming on Tubi and streaming on a couple other places. It would make a good double feature with the other. Childhood secrets and a perfect family on the surface, but nothing is quite right under the surface and memories of the past and memories of summer and then slow building horror. Richard, do you have any trivia or anything about the cast or crew that you want to share? Not so much on the cast, you know, because we're kind of doing a little changed format, but a lot of familiar faces, I think now, and some of them have, some other horror creds, which we always like to mention. So I'll just throw out uh, Una Hagen was also in Boys from Brazil. She was in an episode of the Twilight Zone from the 80s. The character of Aunt V, played by Norma Connolly. A lot of TV work Twilight Zone, The Invaders, Bionic Woman. Victor French, Little House on the Prairie, Highway to Heaven. Okay, not in the wheelhouse of the Classic Horrors Club, but he did a movie called House on Skull Mountain, which I've never seen. So you don't need to see it. It's awful. Okay. <laughs> so boring. He's the lone white actor in a black exploitation film, but a very poor one. I got the midnight movie. I was all excited. The cover art looked great and it's so bad. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Well, no, that's it. That saves me 90 <laughs> minutes. Lou Frizzell played the character of Uncle George. He's a character actor from Springfield, Missouri, by the way. Devil Dog, The Hound of Hell, House of Evil, Episode of Night Gallery. I thought this was interesting. The character of Mrs. Rowe, played by Portia Nelson, she didn't make her acting debut until she was almost 50. She had been a Broadway star, a nightclub performer, and two of her other big movies, The Sound of Music and Dr. Doolittle. You got those two movies and then the other. Which one of these is not like the other? Ah, <laughs> <none>. Okay. <laughs> the character of Tori, played by Jenny Sullivan, was in Night Gallery again, V and V, The Final Battle. 
John Ritter, he's got a couple horror creds to his name, Night That Panicked America and, of course, Bride of Chucky, which came kind of towards the end of his career. I have to throw one in. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Diana Moldar was in a 1978 TV movie called Maneaters Are Loose, which coincidentally I just watched the night before I watched the other. Well, there you go. I'm sure that's on everyone's must-see list. also in Chosen Survivors. Ooh. Sci-fi, apocalyptic, also a Fox film. That's pretty good. Better than House on Skull Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few things about Tom Tryon. This is based on a novel that he did. He wrote the screenplay. He was an actor as well. Retired from acting in 69 to become a horror and mystery writer. The Other and Harvest Home were his two big novels, both of which were turned into films. But he also wrote a series of books called the Crownhead series that were set in Hollywood. The first of which was called Fedora, which apparently was turned into a movie. Billy Wilder, yeah. Yeah, like a follow-up to Sunset Boulevard, right? An interesting movie, also dealing with identity, much like the other, people pretending to be other people, but not as successful as the other, I have to say. We did lose him in 1991 at a far too young of age. He was 65. He died of cancer that was related to HIV. Now, I am going to say we would be remiss, and I'm serious. I'm not joking on this one. He was in I Married a Monster from Outer Space, one of my favorite movies. There you go. He was unhappy, apparently, with this film. According to some quotes, he didn't like the finished product. He doesn't really put the blame in any one direction and even at one point says it might have been the screenplay, but then he says, I don't think it was. Yeah, I've read that too, but I think it's just chalk it up to when you make something and you have a certain vision in your head and then, oh, here it is. It's just personal perfectionism. He also is the producer on the film, too. So he was more than just the writer. It was it really is his show. He oversaw quite a bit of it. And I think it's just like he had certain expectations in his mind and they didn't live up to those expectations. I disagree with him completely. I think it's a great film. I remember back in the earlier days of the IMDb, there was still the message boards before the trolls took over and caused them to remove the IMDb message boards. Someone posted a really interesting story on the other message board where they said they saw the film in the theater and Rod Serling was sitting in the row in front of them. And it was over. Rod Serling and his wife stood up to leave. And this person said, Mr. Serling, what did you think of it? And he goes, I really enjoyed it. I thought that was a very good film. Tom Tryon wasn't happy with it. Rod Serling certainly enjoyed it. Wow. Did everyone catch the brief cameo of Angelo Rosito? Yeah. And also, there's the guy, this is so deep cut, but when they go in to see the hydrocephalic baby, they're frightened by this disfigured man. He's got, obviously, a medical disfigurement. Yeah. This same guy pops up in The Sentinel, which is... A horror movie that <laughs> it's it's trashy, but I really love it. <laughs> I enjoy. It I love too. the books yeah. too. As one of the denzings of hell, he's in there, and he's the same guy. And that's 1977, a couple of years after the other. Very cool. And at one point, Ingrid Bergman was considered for the role of Ada, but apparently was unavailable. So I saw this, and, and I'm curious what you guys thought was. So apparently, there was an alternate ending at one point. When this film aired on CBS in the 70s, the final shot that we have of Niles kind of, he's looking through a window, and I think it's Winnie is the one who says dinner time or whatever. In the televised version, there is a voiceover by Niles, although it's voiced by a different actor, because now it was several years later. The voiceover says, Holland, the game's over. We can't play the game anymore. But when the sheriff comes, I'll ask him if we can play it in our new home. That line, it definitely kind of changes the end of the film in the sense that it's kind of left ambiguous as far as what's happening. But you get the impression that Niles got away with it all because he's going down for dinner. That voiceover implies he's going somewhere. Yeah, Yeah, he got caught and he's going somewhere and possibly to a mental health facility. Subsequent releases and all the media releases, they've restored the original ending. 
do you guys have a thought of like which one would work better? Is it better the way it was originally done or do you like well, the potential? The reason for them having done that was because on television, they needed to have some kind of censorship to show that evil did not get away with it. So that okay. was actually enforced by the networks, which is why that happens. But as a film, you know, in the early 70s, everything was just, you know, you just had Manson, you just had Vietnam. You know, everything is very nihilistic niles and nihilistic so that downer of an ending of evil one at the end of this film and what is he going to do now he's ruined the family you also see Dinah Mulder, you know sitting catatonic as the camera passes through the window and he's destroyed this family and he's clearly gone insane and, and jerry goldsmith's music with that that weird like echoing i want to call it a horn we hear it also in aliens score if you thought it was bad then with everything that's unfolded, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So much a part of that early 70s filmmaking, pre-Star Wars, where you could get away with unhappy endings. So I prefer that. And just also as a side note with the TV version, so many people do think this was a made-for-TV movie because of the lack of on-screen violence and because, like you, Jeff, mentioned, almost everybody saw it on television because it wasn't a, a hit at the theaters. It got a second life on TV. And it does have that made-for-TV, night gallery-esque vibe going on because it is so restrained in its horror. But the TV ending is, I think it's a little bit of a cop-out, but I understand why it exists. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the, the bleak ending every time. Yeah. yeah, I agree. <laughs> it, yeah. But I, you're making me think now because I didn't really think, like, no one else knows what he did, right? Nobody knows, yeah. Ah, they don't. They, don't. Okay. they think Ada, she was upset and burned the barn down. It's all, even the way that Winnie says, hey, Niles, wash up, it's time for lunch. It's so normal, natural. Literally, the family has been destroyed not less than 12 hours earlier with what has gone down on the farm. And yeah, they've pinned it on Angelini, you know, Victor French. That's actually one thing that does bother me now when I was rewatching the film earlier this summer, I wish that she hadn't, I mean, it's a throwaway line, but I wish that it hadn't been delivered so jovially. Yeah. Like if yeah. there had been a little bit more, oh, Niles, wash up. Like she herself has been through it rather than like, oh, wash up. Everything's fine. You know, come on down. It's 4th of July. Yeah. A little more somber tone would have been better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what that bleak ending means? Ansel, you have to make the other two. No, no, I'd rather do, I don't, no. He's grown up If we're going to do, uh, do a 70s sequel, I want to do The Guardian, which is the sequel to The Sentinel, because that was a great book. There are some twists and turns in that one that would be very timely today with sexuality and identity, and that would be fun. But no, leave the other alone. Let Kino Lorber reissue that on Blu-ray. If Maybe you could do the commentary. If I can ramble for 90-some minutes, yeah, and remain coherent. <laughs> Any last words? There's much more I could say, but we could let people enjoy and discover some of it for themselves. Yeah, what secrets we haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend this movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is something to add to your October Halloween viewing. Yeah, I love this movie. Ansel, you've got the last word. Thank you guys, first of all, for letting me come on and talk about this movie. It is one of my favorites. I'm always trying to push this and Roman Polanski's The Tenant and a couple other like very underrated thrillers on anybody that will listen to me. <laughs> Thanks for this opportunity. I mentioned I'm an independent filmmaker. So luckily with our very, very low budget paperwork and our independent facilities, I'll use that word, we were able to wrap uh, comedy which we have been wanting to make for a decade. The great Nick D. It's uh, <laughs> it is the furthest thing from the other. It is about a washed up porn star who's now a Venice Beach nobody that's on an odyssey to restart his mainstream acting career in order to win back his lost love, who is now an Oscar-nominated actress on the equivalent of like Meryl Streep's caliber. Back in the day, they were just kids in love. It's an epic comedy. We have Catherine Lee Scott, Laura Parker, David Selby, Jerry Lacey in a cameo, Lisa Richards, 
Olan Jones, Sam Irvin in roles in the film. Nathan Wilson, my frequent collaborator, he and I, we wrote it. He plays the great Nick D. It's been so much fun to make. Stressful at times, but any film comes with stress. The furthest thing from Loon Lake, the furthest thing from Todd Tarantula. More in the line of my love story, Will and Liz, which is a film I'm very proud of. Hoping to get some festival screenings of that in the coming year. Also, I've got two Blu-rays coming out of, of my earlier films, special editions of The Last Case of August T. Harrison and The Nighttime Winds, which are, are both genre pieces. I have a column in We Belong Dead magazine out of the UK, Ansel's Asylum for the Psychotronic, <laughs> which took me a minute to think of that title. Coming up, there's a whole article I wrote about Todd Browning, sort of a reappreciation of Todd Browning. I think Todd Browning always gets crapped on and nobody really appreciates his work, nor him as a filmmaker. And I myself used to disparage Dracula. Everybody holds James Whale in esteem and rightfully so. But Todd Browning really was an auteur. He really had a vision, even in Dracula. When I really dived in and did my research on him and then revisited the film, there are very specific choices in that movie, very voyeuristic choices. And it's not a boring, stagey, talky film at all, the way that we all kind of remember it in our minds to be. After I turned the article in to Daryl at We Belong Dead, Criterion very excitedly announced Freaks, The Mystic, which has never been on home video at all, and the long print of The Unknown on Blu-ray. So my wallet is crying, <laughs> but I am happy. So you can find all of my work at hollinsworthproductions.com. I'll spell it H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H productions.com. Any purchase is a support for this very broke, but very passionate independent filmmaker. But you'll have to come back sometime because I want to hear more inside stories about Dark Shadows, how you oh, yeah. got in so tight with that group. and They are a real um, family. They are. The yeah, that's awesome. They really that's... exist and it's them. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for having me. Richard, that was a great conversation with Ansel. I, I really enjoyed that. Why don't you tell us what's happening on next Monday's episode? Before I do that, I want to share with you about a Kickstarter campaign that has just recently launched. It is going only for two weeks. So this episode's going live on Monday, October 2nd. And it should still be up for another three days. So it'll end on October 5th. And it is to restore the 1926 silent film, The Bat. This is the kind of old dark house flick that supposedly was the inspiration for Bob Kane and the Batman character. This is also, of course, the film that has been remade a few times over the years. I think it was The Bat Whispers in 1930, as well as Vincent Price's version in 59. This is a great Kickstarter campaign that I fully endorse. It is being spearheaded by Ben Modell, which I've mentioned, I believe, on the show here before. I have personally supported his last two Kickstarter campaigns. I can tell you that he always exceeds expectations. Check it out. The easiest way to do it is just go to my blog. I did a post on September 21st that uh, will give you a link to take you to the Kickstarter campaign. I'll give you some more information on Ben Modell, give you the Monster Movie Kids seal of approval. The goal is to have it done by Halloween 2024. So if you get in on this deal now, you're going to be the first one to get the Blu-ray or DVD in your hand. The price is right, and you'll have it to watch for your countdown to halloween 2024 we are in the countdown to halloween 2023 and next week on episode 86 we are going to be talking about sugar hill the 1974 black exploitation classic with our special guest dominique lamsey's it is going to be a really fun discussion talking about this voodoo zombie flick in an era in which zombies were transitioning away from the voodoo and into the brain-munching George Romero version. If you would like to join along at home, your homework is to watch Sugar Hill. It is available as we speak on 
AMC Plus, Freebie, Pluto TV, a lot of free choices and good quality prints. You can also rent it. You can purchase it on Vudu if you so desire. The Blu-ray is available from Kino Lorber, sells for about $20 on Amazon. You can also find a rip of the Blu-ray on archive.org. If you do your Google Foo, you can find it pretty easy. No excuse not to join along. Dominique adds great insight, something that we don't always, if ever, offer, the female point of view. I look forward to everybody hearing that. You've got a great episode coming your way in seven days. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, everyone. Take care. Don't miss it. And don't forget to wear your masks. The clock is ticking. It's almost time.